My name is Cynthia Graber. I am the co-host of Gastropod, a podcast about the science and history of food. And a non-work-related fact about myself, it's a very nerdy one, unsurprisingly, is that I really love speaking other languages. I love to talk to people in their own language. I love kind of the music of speaking other languages. I speak Hebrew, Spanish, and French. And because of Spanish and French, I can understand Catalan in Barcelona, although I can't speak it. And I can speak a bastardized version of Portuguese and Spanish that when people are speaking it to each other, they call Portuñol. I'm Jesse Sparks, and this is The One Recipe, a podcast that turns to highly curious chefs and inquisitive home cooks with a big question in mind. What is their one? You know, the recipe they make so often they can recite it from memory. Well, this week, we're racking our brains for the recipes that are always top of mind with Cynthia Graber. You might know Cynthia as the co-host of the podcast, Gastropod a show about food with a side of history and science, or as a lecturer at MIT. But if you haven't, here's the lowdown. She's also an award-winning radio producer and print reporter who's covered science, technology, food, and agriculture. I'll let Cynthia tell you a little bit more. Cynthia, hello! Hello! Oh my god, it's so great to have you. I'm really thrilled to be joining you. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm a huge fan of Gastropod, like I'm sure so many of our listeners are too. But how did you and your co-host, Nicola Twilley, decide it was time to do your own show? So we have a funny story. And when we're on interviews together, we kind of tell it back and forth. But I had been in audio, working in first in radio before podcasting for a long time. And had sort of started thinking that it was time for me to do my own thing. And I had this Knight Fellowship for a year at MIT. And I had this idea of, you know, a podcast about women in science. And then it just, I realized that wasn't what I wanted to do. And I really wanted this, like, intersection of food, science, and history. And Nikki and I met at a fellowship we both had under Michael Pollan. And it was a year later. And I was finally kind of really working on this idea. She was having a really horrible day, I could tell on Twitter. So I said, you know, I wanted to get your feedback on this idea I have. And she just was having such a bad day that she was kind of take no prisoners in a very un-British, and she is British, very un-British move, wrote back, <laughs> this is a great idea and you need a co-host. I was like, I do need a co-host and this will be good. What she didn't realize, because she had no idea how much work a show like Gastropod is, she didn't realize she was proposing to me. But that was in <laughs> 2014 and we've been married, you know, work-wise since 2014. <laughs> I love this unwitting proposal, you know, <laughs> just this casual like, ah, yes, will you sign up to work with me and talk to me more than your own family members? Oh, totally. For hours a day, for years and years, I had more of a sense because I'd been working in audio for so long. She had literally <laughs> no idea. <laughs> kind of on a different tangent, but still in the same ethos. I feel like so many of us really struggle to find inspiration in food. We look at our fridges, we look at our pantries, especially around mealtime, and it feels like there's nothing exciting or of note there. And yet, I feel like every single week, you and Nicola are constantly finding new ideas, new stories behind the things that we all take for granted. So how do you find the next subject for a podcast deep dive, or even just what you want for dinner? Well, so to start with for dinner, my partner Tim will look at our 
kitchen and say, there's nothing to eat. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And, and then I kind of whip together. I, I I think it's one of my little um, not particularly useful superpowers outside of dinner time. But I can kind of, if there's some sort of staple around, I can figure out a, something delicious to eat. Um, so I will claim that as a little superpower. But in terms of the show, I think there's just so many stories out there. It's a little challenging because Gastropod, you know, we really do a deep dive and it really is a documentary each time. And we try to have both science and history, depending on, you know, the topic that we chose. Nikki is particularly amazing at idea generation. It's something she really loves. And so sometimes, you know, if I'm feeling a little bit at the end of my rope, she'll be like, oh, wait, what about this? And it's usually great. But it's often, you know, sometimes we'll be traveling somewhere and we're like, oh, we're this was before the pandemic. But, oh, we're traveling to Miami to perform. It's mango season. Is there anything we can do? And we ended up reporting this really amazing episode that I still love about mangoes because we were going to be in in uh, Miami around the right time. So it's a combination of do we have a trip that we'd like to plan and do a bunch of reporting there? You know, are there things going on in the news that we can cover with the formula crisis from last year? We ended up doing a long episode about breast milk and formula that we probably wouldn't have you know, thought of doing before that. So we get our inspiration from everywhere. I love that. And I just love that open curiosity. I feel like so many of us just kind of stop as soon as there's not an obvious answer in front of us. But that curiosity really is the key. OK, I got to know, what is your one recipe so I've been thinking about this a lot since I talked about coming on and on the show and and uh, choosing one recipe. It's kind of hard because there's a number of things that I kind of throw together regularly, but there's one recipe that I just feel really connected to, and it's kind of a real comfort food for me, but also has all these flavors and textures that I love. And it's shakshuka. And I have to say, I became obsessed with shakshuka way before you could find it in restaurants here. And it actually was kind of why I taught myself how to make it, because when I moved back to the U.S. from Israel, I couldn't find it anywhere. I love shakshuka. So I'm curious. There are so many different iterations. Even some chefs have published the same or different variations on the same recipe multiple times. Is there one that kind of sticks out for you? Well, so... I'm going to explain a little bit my shakshuka evolution, which will then explain which recipe I got to. You know, I think I've always loved Middle Eastern flavors. Growing up in a Jewish household, my mom didn't cook Middle Eastern food, but, you know, hummus and baba ganoush and everything were, were pretty normal for us. And my favorite restaurant in maybe high school and college was a, like, white tablecloth Lebanese restaurant in, in Bethesda, Maryland called Bakus. That's, I think, no longer white tablecloth, although it still might be around. I spent a number of extended trips or, you know, times that I was in Israel, two months, two months, a year. And then I moved to Tel Aviv for two years. And this is kind of my strongest memory because I didn't have much money. I, I had a normal job and I would get shakshuka in pita for lunch. And then if I had the opportunity to go out with friends for breakfast, you know, for something special, I would get kind of the more classic, like, you know, baked in a little single serving pan with some bread on the side. And I just loved it. And so when I moved back to the U.S., you couldn't find it anywhere. I mean, literally like nowhere, at least certainly not in the Boston area, maybe in New York. <laughs> so I started trying to make it at home. And then I ended up getting Yota Motolenghi's cookbook Plenty before it was published in the U.S. I don't know how I had heard of him, but a friend ordered it for me from England because I really wanted it. And he had a recipe for it there, but it was a little complicated. I mean, it's totally delicious, like all his recipes, but it didn't quite hit that sort of lunchtime in a pita or like a thing that just was sort of this real comfort food. And then in his cookbook, Jerusalem, as you say, chefs have different variations on the same recipe. He had a different recipe. And sort of, I think that's where 
I got my original inspiration and then sort of started doing my own thing from that. So for anyone who isn't familiar, you're talking about like the Tunisian dish that's typically some type of red sauce, either made from a combination of like tomatoes, sometimes peppers, sometimes harissa and tomato paste. A lot of people have their own kind of ratios of all of the above. Uh, And then it's eggs cooked in that kind of sauce. Is that correct? Yeah. So actually, because I, you know, host a show about the science and history of food, Gastropod, I had to look into this before we talked. And so it seems like there's a lot of debate. Tunisians definitely claim it as their own. So do Moroccans. And it's unclear really who invented it. The The spices in it are definitely from the region. Obviously, the mm-hmm. chili and the red pepper and the tomato came from the New World. So it's kind of unclear when it all appeared, but it, it made its way to Israel when North African Jews moved to Israel in like the 50s and 60s and is very, very popular street food there and restaurant food too. My version of it definitely has a lot of red peppers. Um, you know, there's sauteed onions, sauteed garlic, I love harissa in it and definitely put plenty of it because I love spicy food. Lots of um, powdered coriander. I think that's really what makes the dish, like the brightness of coriander really makes it sing. And obviously cumin. I'm personally kind of obsessed with cumin from burlap and barrel. All cumin is good, but theirs is kind of weirdly better than other cumin. Um, They don't pay me to say that. (laughs) And then tomatoes. And sometimes I roast my own tomatoes in the summer. And so they're in the freezer or, you know, canned. I get canned fire roasted tomatoes and those are great. And then it kind of simmers in a sauce. And then, yeah, you have to cook the eggs in it. And this is sort of where things get dicey, because to me, the perfect shakshuka has set whites but runny yolks. Like, I want my yolks runny. But the problem is that a lot of stovetops or pans are uneven. So I'm actually really excited I'm going to be getting uh, an induction stove in a few months. And I'm hoping it's going to make my shakshuka cook more evenly. <laughs> oh my gosh, you are going to be unstoppable. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm so excited for you. Also, I'm just here beaming at the history lesson, the, the cultural <laughs> notes, the accuracy. Like, honestly, food nerds like me are just living right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm definitely like most of my experience or most of my expertise is in being nerdy. So, uh, so I'm here for that. But so, you know, depending on if I'm just making it for two of us and then I'll cook four eggs or if I have people over and I'm doing six or eight eggs, which makes it even more challenging. I'm like rotating the pan. I mean, you can also finish it in the oven to get it to set. But, you know, just checking it to make sure, is it done? Is this one overdone? Is this one not done? So that's where things get a little more complicated. But in general, it's just, you know, pepper, garlic, onion, tomato, spices, eggs. It's not actually super complicated. And assuming you don't burn it, which I've, I've done before, you know, if it gets a little too dry and I've I've cooked it for too long before I put the eggs in. But assuming you don't burn it, it's kind of hard to mess it up. So now that we've kind of talked through what is kind of the most complicated parts of actually making shikshuka, which is just getting all the right ingredients, being really picky and really specific with which spices you're going to use, can you just quickly walk us through the actual making of the recipe? Sure. So I saute, I chop and saute onion. And I always like, you know, I love when recipes are like, saute your onion for three minutes and then it's lovely and brown. <laughs> and of course, we all know that sauteing an onion takes a lot longer than that. Oh um, years. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I saute the onion and, you know, make sure it's nice and soft and then put in some chopped garlic and a whole bunch of slivers of red pepper. That's another thing. A, a trick I like is when they're in season in the summer at the farmer's market, I buy a lot and chop them into slivers and stick them in the freezer in bags. And then I can just use them anytime. I want to make shakshuka the rest of the winter. Oh, wait, that's brilliant. It's really, they freeze really beautifully and really easily. And then 
before I threw the tomatoes in, I put in a lot of coriander, powdered coriander and some cumin. And I might put the harissa in at this point, probably, and then kind of let that heat up in the oil a bit. Of course, all of this is in olive oil. And then I open one or two cans of fire roasted tomatoes, again, depending on just how big the pan is. And then and some uh, tomato paste, which also I keep in tablespoon size piles in the free, like little bags of tablespoons of frozen tomato paste in the freezer. So when you open a can, you almost never end up finishing it. So it's easy to save that way. Anyway, so throw that in some some tomato paste in as well and then let the whole thing kind of simmer. I taste it. I add salt. I add pepper. You know, if it needs more um, coriander, I put that in. It needs to be a little spicier. And then when it's just thickened a little bit, not quite as watery as when I crack the eggs on top and cover it to let them start to set. And it takes longer than you think because I don't actually know the science of this and I should. But, you know, when you're making scrambled eggs, you can do it pretty quickly. But to let them poach in that liquid just takes a little bit longer. What are you eating this with? Are you doing a starch? Are you are you going for that pita like you used to? What's your go-to move? Well, because I like it extra runny, I don't usually put it in a pita anymore. I think you have to have the egg slightly harder um, that way and, and the tomato just a little bit less runny, you know, less liquidy. But I put it on a plate, have some bread, some toast with it. I often, you know, might have some crumbled feta at the table if someone wants that. I really love labna, which is a kind of Greek yogurt-like substance. It's yogurt, but the cultures are different, so it's a little bit more sour. That's a really great accompaniment to shakshuka. But basically, the egg, the tomato, and then bread to sop it up with. That's really important because you're going to have all the liquid and the and the runny yolk, and you want some really good bread around. Bread to sop up the sauce, bread to sop up the yolk, bread to sop up your tears because it's <laughs> going to be so good. Uh, Cynthia, thank you so much for sharing this recipe with me, and thanks for stopping by. Sure, it's been great fun. Cynthia Graber is an award-winning print and radio journalist and the co-host of the podcast, Gastropod. You can find that recipe for shakshuka on Instagram at the.one.recipe and at theonerecipe.org. And hey, don't forget to like the episode and share it with a friend. It means the world. This week's episode was made for you by producer Erica Romero, associate producer Ren Farrell, technical director Alex Simpson, and digital producer James Napoli. Sally Swift is our managing producer. APM Studios executives in charge are Chandra Kavati, Alex Shaffert, and Joanne Griffith. Beth Perlman is our executive producer. The One Recipe was created by Sally Swift and Erica Romero. I'm Jesse Sparks. This is APM Studios. Go make some magic. Magic.